Hello? Morning. Glad to see you guys are all in the swing of fall. Um, so typically, uh, worship leaders are instructed to try to match their music as much as they can to the to the sermon and everything like that. And I just want to say, aren't you incredibly glad that we are not doing that uh, with Ecclesiastes? Uh, because if that were true, it would be incredibly depressing worship. Um, and all we would be able to sing is country. So um, <laughs> I'm glad that uh, we can kind of step away from trying to make everything look uh, like a cohesive picture. And what is the cohesive picture is what we're going to talk about. Uh, and, and really what Ecclesiastes does discuss primarily, the cohesive picture is really what is our role and how does God influence that? Um, and what is he trying to accomplish and how do we partner with him. Um, I think the danger and what Ecclesiastes uh, can help get us away from is that we always try to make God fit our life, make God fit our plans, make it a God-inspired thing that we're doing rather than a thing that is done through the power of God for God because it's his vision. Um, Ecclesiastes, I mean, I'm, I'm gaining a much different and uh, deeper understanding of it in this series, but prior to this, there's always been something that refocuses me on the concept of, um, of perspective. I think perspective fixes the majority of the problems that we have uh, in Christianity. Whenever we're dealing with sin, it's typically always a perspective issue. Uh, when we're dealing with not serving people, it's a perspective issue. Um, when we're dealing with our role um, in life, our role in marriage, our role in parenting, it's a perspective issue. So for us in Ecclesiastes, we've looked at a bunch of different aspects of our life where our perspective needs to be shifted. And a lot of them carry the same theme. It's all vanity. It's all meaningless. Um, you would think that he could write this in like a cliff's note and be like, everything's stupid. Done. Right? But instead he goes into this very systematic um, experiment his grand experiment that we've been seeing as he, he moves from thing to thing to thing, uh, object to object to object, philosophy to, to philosophy, thing that should inspire us, thing that should push us, thing that should give us meaning. And we find at the end of the day that it all just doesn't matter. Apart from God, everything under the sun is meaningless. So today, um, we're going through all of chapter four. Uh, we're going to continue steamrolling through this, uh, which is contrary to our nature. Uh, what I want you to see, though, is that this is, uh, this is not all necessarily talking about the same thing, but because I'm a Baptist, they all start with R, okay? Um, so <laughs> this is not all necessarily talking about the same thing, because when he wrote this, he didn't write it, again, with chapter markings, right? So we're going we're gonna to find some main themes that we want. I'm not necessarily preaching against anything today, as so much I want you to see really what Kohala is able to kind of turn our minds to what are we we're not going to look necessarily at all of just the problems we're going to look at what are some of the solutions what what are some ways that we can we can make this uh, work that it actually has meaning what are some of the lessons that we can learn uh, some of the principles that are involved here um, so let's go ahead and read with that through Ecclesiastes chapter 4 um, it is my goal today to actually let us have our closing song um, so we will be uh, <laughs> trying to get the front row back on stage. All right, let's go ahead and read through this. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1. 
He says again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not, been, not yet been born, and he who has not yet seen the evils that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and is striving after one. Father God, today as we move through your word again and, and dig deeply, Father, into what you have to say, Lord, I ask that you open our hearts, Father, that you open our minds, Father, that you bring illumination to us in your word. And Father, as I struggle uh, to move through this passage, and Father, that you can bring uh, to our attention the things in our lives, Father, that do not match up with your word, that do not match up with your character. Father, that you push us and pull us, make us uncomfortable. Father, put us in a position where we can most look like your son. Father, that heart position needs to be corrected. And we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. All right, so we're going to start off with a little bit of a bad note. But what's interesting is we get to see a little bit of redemption through this passage. Um, the first thing I want you guys to see is the reality of oppression. The reality of oppression. In verse 1 he says again, and it's interesting that he, he starts with again. Again is kind of a, obviously a repetition thing. This has already been said. Uh, this is something that we are attacking again. I, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. In the Bible, always pay attention to anything that you see that's repeated. All right, when we were doing Scripture for Dummies, we did some worksheet type stuff in our small groups. Um, you can take a passage, and I don't know if you know this, but your Bible typically is made of paper, and paper holds ink and, and lead. So you can write in them. Um, if you don't feel like that, BibleGateway.com. You can change the version to whatever you want, and there's this handy-dandy feature called print. And with that, you can scribble all over the page. All right? Always look for repetition. Always look for themes that are repeated. Always look for um, words that are moving us along in a thought. 
you can draw circles around one thing and draw a line between them. Um, it's fun. It's kind of like connect the word dots. You have a little three-year-old picture when you're done. Um, always be looking for those repetition type things. So when we see something stressed in Scripture, um, it's something that we should take note of. So when we see, first of all, this idea of comfort, what is comfort in opposition to? Discomfort, right? It's pretty easy. Um, so we have comfort. There is no comfort, so there are in discomfort. Where does that come from? This oppression that is just being done under the sun, this power from oppression. So um, in order to kind of begin in this, let's go ahead and define our terms. What is oppression? What is um, not necessarily what does Merriam-Webster say in English for us, but what does the Bible say oppression is? So when we go to Scripture and we see this theme of oppression, what does it mean throughout the rest of our Bibles? So oppression involves cheating one's neighbor of something. Uh, it could also just be defrauding him and, and then robbing him. Those, that's kind of the main definition. So it's cheating one's neighbor of something, defrauding him or robbing him. In Leviticus chapter 6, 2 through 5, um, it associates it with expropriation, stealing, retaining lost property that has been found, and swearing falsely. So there, there's a lot. Really, it, it kind of gets down to anything that you do against your neighbor uh, that withholds something from him can uh, ideally be put into this idea of oppression because with the government, it could be expropriation where they, they take back something uh, that is yours uh, for their use. It could be just stealing, retaining lost property uh, that's been found or swearing falsely. Uh, it involves making an unjust gain, including the profit made from interest on loans. Uh, it is the abuse of power, financial or otherwise, uh, perpetrated on those who are not so powerful and are indeed vulnerable. And when we look through Scripture with oppression, it, it's typically put with the poor, widows, orphans, strangers. When we see in Scripture that hospitality is so important, um, and you don't extend that type of hospitality to strangers, um, we are withholding something that they need. They didn't have, you know, 18 different motels to choose from. They relied on people being hospitable to them in their travels. So when you withhold shelter from strangers, that's a form of oppression. So thus, it is often associated with violence and bloodshed in the Old Testament and with the denial of rights and justice. Oppression is accumulation, the seeking after profit, without regard to the nature, needs, and rights of other people. Oppression is selfishness. <laughs> It is. All of this stuff is us withholding from someone else for our gain. And so when Kohala is talking about oppression, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Uh, he's, he's talking about a, a cumulative amount. And, and we're going to see something interesting in here. But, uh, you see it a little bit in the title, uh, the reality of oppression. This is a very r real thing. It's not to be, shouldn't be a surprise. <laughs> Um, it definitely shouldn't be a surprise in this political season. Uh, we see all these commercials talking about this was my right, I should have this. And whether it's a deserved right or whether it's an expectation, um, whether it should be or not, um, it, it might be entitlement, whatever it may be, we see this idea that people, as Romney says, are getting crushed, as Obama says, we need to move forward. I, I mean, we see it on both sides of the camp that just things aren't where we want them to be. Everybody has been able to agree on that, right? I can't get a job. The economy stinks. My unborn child has thousands of dollars of debt. I mean, everybody agrees we don't like where we're at. So what do we do with that? The reality is, is we are being oppressed in one form or another. Does the answer come in a candidate? Does an answer come in a policy? Does an answer come in government? Where does the answer come from? 
The problem is, is we think that it can be political, and we think that it can be businesses. We think that it can be a numerous amount of different things. And so when we look at the idea of oppression, uh, it comes down to power. We are giving power to somebody, and whether it's economic or otherwise, um, it's not to be abused. People, whether less powerful than we or not, are not to be treated as objects out of which profit can be squeezed, uh, but as human beings made by the same God who created us all. The problem here is not just economic gain. You can oppress somebody for profit that's not financial. Let's be careful about how we wield whatever power we may have, whether it's economic or physical or emotional or managerial, whatever it may be, whatever kind of power you have, we cannot abuse it. And so human beings, as we find them under the sun, the fundamental problem is that we're all in rebellion against God and thus generally careless of our neighbors. As Kohelet sees all too clearly and laments, uh, they will happily kick and trample on the heads of those beneath them. This is simply the way the world is with its injunction, but we should not be surprised by it. When the problem is, is when we cry out about this oppression, we don't understand that we are by nature enemies of God, right? And because of that, we end up being enemies of each other. And through that, it's easy for us to kick people while they're down, to climb on top of them just to get to where we want to go. And you're not going to get anything out of this passage until you can be honest with yourself and say, yes, I would do that. In our Christian lives, we, we try to batter that down so much that we forget that we're still capable of that. And that we still do it. In our families, in our marriages, in our jobs, even in church. So the world is therefore a miserable place for many people who live without anyone to comfort them with the real prospect of change in their circumstances. Comfort not simply as empty words, but as carrying with it the promise of help and protection, and thus real comfort. So people finding comfort in this political campaign, in their candidate, whether successful or not, come November, they try to find comfort in that, and it's not real. <laughs> it's not. This is not simply um, a change of circumstances. Getting more money is not going to increase your comfort level. It's not going to increase your comfort level. We're talking about the promise of help and protection. Someone to care for you, to shelter you, to have your back, to take care of you. That's a real comfort. And so Kohelet goes on and says in verse 2, And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. I was making sure that we didn't bring this up on Wednesday night when we were discussing uh, suicide, but this is a harsh indictment of life. When he says that the dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living. So they've been deprived even of the most modest means out of which to live their lives in such a situation. Kohelet suggests the dead are to be commended over the living. They're to be congratulated and at least attaining rest. So when you come home and you say, oh, I worked so hard, I can't believe this is doing it. I mean, Kohelet says, well, it would be better if you were dead. Because at least then you have rest. If you have an NIV, is anybody using the NIV? Okay. 
You have an NIV, you need to be careful. The translation here is dangerous. Um, it may be taken to imply a subjective state, uh, happier than the living. They're happier than the living as if it was um, subjective. It is not. Um, we need to understand that they, this is more of a, they're to be congratulated. They are to be commended over the living, not happier than the living. Um, note for your translations. But understand that he, he makes a very clear indictment of, of where where we should be and how tough this is. I'm sorry if you're not having fun yet uh, because this isn't fun. Um, life stinks. It's tough. There is a lot of work to be done. And as soon as you finish your list, go talk to your wife. It'll be filled again. <laughs> right? I mean, it is always full. But then he goes on even farther and says in verse 3, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. More fortunate than both the living and the dead, however, are those uh, two who have not even seen Kohelet, what Kohelet has seen because they have not yet been born. So, the living have no one to comfort them. The dead are be t- to be commended because they have at least attained rest. But even better is if you haven't experienced any of it. None of it. Experienced zero. He uses the word evil. How would you define evil? <laughs> we try to define evil um, in our men's group on Wednesday night. And uh, evil's an interesting word. How do you describe it? Is it simply what is against the character of God? It's kind of a the better broad definition. We want to say, well, it's bad, right? Um, anything that's bad. The, the, the thing with words, right, is you have the uh, denotation, the, the definition, and you have the connotation. The, what are the things that it, it elicits in your mind? When you hear a word, do you just hear the definition or do you hear what it, what it means, what it feels, what brings with it, right? Evil is one of those words that has a feeling, right? And it's not quite an onomatopoeia, so it's not a splash where you feel wet or weird, right? Um, it's, it's not the buzz or the sound of your phones, right? If I s- even just say that, you can hear what it sounds like because um, I hear it next to my bed all night. Um, it's not quite that kind of a feeling, but it has a connotation of bringing something with it. So when I say evil, what do you think of? I mean, it's Halloween. You think I know, you know, the pitchfork and devil guy? Are you thinking of you know, your mother when you were a kid? <laughs> Are you thinking of Rwanda? Are you thinking of uh, Hitler and the, the Jewish um, deaths that happened there? What, are you, what do you think of when you hear evil? Because I think what needs to come with that is that connotation. And all those major situations that I was laying out, there, there's a sense of misery that's involved there. It is a miserable concept. Nothing good comes with evil. That's, I mean, it, it is, it's antithesis. Nothing good comes with evil. So everything that gives us warm and fuzzies, we have to set aside and deal with the harsh, cold reality of what evil is. And that misery is a large part of what Kohala is trying to bring home here. This reality of oppression isn't just, well, their lives aren't comfortable. It's not just that they live in a squalid state where they can't get what they need, that they're being denied these things. It's that there is misery there. And so for those who haven't been born, they're blessed to not have yet had to look at it. The connotation for that word is, is huge. 
So we're dealing with power, we're dealing with oppression and the balance that it has to strike. So in verse 4, uh, we see then that he says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. So the fuel that feeds the fires of this human striving, um, just kind of striving after each other, making it almost a game where we leapfrog each other as one gets better and better. We now see for the first time in Ecclesiastes uh, that Koholet identifies it. All labor and all achievement are better, all toil and success uh, spring from man's envy of his neighbor. So how do we how do we reconcile this? We're dealing with power, we're dealing with oppression. Um, we've seen how miserable that oppression is. What Koholet feels about that, the people who have not yet been born to be the most blessed people, and I have to experience any of that misery. Where does it come from? What, what kind of kick starts that? What is the fundamental um, issue that drives that forward? Well, he lays it out being very clearly. All toil, all skill and work, or all success come from man's envy of his neighbor. It's the suspicion or realization that others are gaining more from life than we are that leads us on to compete with them in the insane rat race, striving to outdo them. So we have people with means accomplishing something, and then someone without any means whatsoever feels like they have to top that. Because that makes sense, right? Let alone the fact that we draw meaning from those two things. So Matt just got his new playset, right? Well, sorry, Chap got his new playset, whatever. <laughs> I know you've been on that slide a couple times. Um, got his new playset, right? Who's getting theirs next? Mm-hmm, right? And, and it's going to be bigger, too, right? Exactly. See, that, that's, that's how we operate. Um, my dad, and I, I checked with him on Friday because I was talking to him about uh, what they got, and I'm just, just, I wish I had seen a picture of Bruce and Matt hanging on the end of that trying <laughs> to teeter that down. Um, but I talked to my dad, and he, he made his just so, so insanely tall. I don't know if he cut down trees and made it, but I've not seen boards this long. Um, in Lowe's ever, and now I, granted I was about this tall then, actually, and uh, it probably seemed a little bit bigger, but we confirmed on Friday that it was enormous. Um, so I, I told Jess that I, I'm really hoping our kid isn't a girl, because I don't have the amount of money to do the things that I want to do for a girl that would come. Um, for a boy, I'm going to throw a football at him, and he'll be happy. Uh, <laughs> for a girl, I'm going to want to build, that thing that he just got would be pink, and it would be a castle. Um, so I'm <laughs> what we do is we strive to outdo each other over stupid things, over things that maybe matter, um, over, over things that just have honestly no significance whatsoever. Uh, why do we compare houses? Why do we compare electronics? Why do we do those things? And yes, I understand on the electronic one that that's me. Um, a moderate defense of myself, I, I hope, is more of an example. Um, the Xbox that we have. Uh, it's from when they first, I have at least, it's from when they first came out, and it has not red-ringed. Um, it is a very old machine with no memory whatsoever, um, which kind of sucks for Rockman. But uh, that thing is ancient. Uh, I'm still rocking this one that was given to me, and uh, I'm, I'm very pleased with it. Uh, my computer is from 2009, and for those of you that say, that's not that long ago, you don't know computers. <laughs> um, nor what I do with it, but those things, my TV, you know, I got it on uh, sale on Black Friday, those type things. We can be productive with our things, but we don't have to be crazy, right? Um, 
I kept my phone for my full two-year contract, and uh, I came out in the black on upgrading. Um, so we have to be smart about these things. And, and what can happen could be the opposite. I could have, let's see, start at the beginning. I could get a new Halo 4 Xbox because it's got a sweet skin on it, right? Um, with upgraded memory because there's so much DLC, right? Uh, I'm sorry, I'm getting a little jargon here. Um, could have the new fourth generation iPad that really the only difference is is that it has a lightning connector, which is pretty sweet, but nonetheless not needed. Um, I could have the new iMac that came out because it's super thin, even though they cheat you when they show you pictures and never show it on the side because it bevels out. Um, could have all these things, and, and instead we would have no money. My wife would be eating her shoes, and um, it would be very cold in our house. Um, <laughs> so these are kind of the two options that we have to do, right? One is a rat race. One is a life in moderation, right? At least I'm striving for that. Um, this rat race comes about from trying to compete with each other. Competition um, or envy, uh, I don't want to hear that's a deadly sin. The point is that this is a fundamental undergirding of what the problem is here that's bringing about misery. And it's not just misery in your own lives, because I, I think what's interesting is that it's assumed that the misery is already for the individual. And what he's almost trying to point out is that is the effect that it has on everybody else, so the ripple effect. We need to understand that, and I think he's made that very clear, but it hasn't. I don't want it to be understood. I want it to be clear here that this misery affects you. It affects the person with power. It's not just a ripple effect. If anything, at the epicenter, it's the worst. So we see at the end of then verse 4, another common theme. This is vanity and the striving after wind. As disastrous as this is for the people who are trampled on, it's futile for the person who is upwardly mobile at their expense. The pointless chasing after wind. Verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Uh, <laughs> Bible's supposed to be taken literally, right? This is like wisdom literature, so what do we do with this? Um, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Literally embraces his hands and eats his own flesh. The foolish person keeps his hands to himself rather than embrace work and the fruits of his labor that follow on from work. Consequently, he has nothing to eat but himself. If you don't work, you don't eat, right? Second Thessalonians. It all comes because in First Thessalonians, he says, hey, the kingdom of God is at hand. Prepare yourselves. Awesome. We quit our jobs and wait for Jesus. He says, whoa, whoa, whoa. He writes the second letter and says, if you don't work, you don't eat. Um, we can't support this community if you're not going to work, all right? Um, this is a fool who folds his hands and does nothing. Doesn't toil, all right? We could say, well, why am I going to work? It's toil and it's meaningless because you need to eat. And, uh, you can literally eat, your, eat yourself. And it's this weird uh, these commentaries are weird. Painting creepy Hebrew pictures <laughs> of people who literally just eat themselves all the way around until they finally consume their head. It's like a circular thing where they start eating themselves and eventually work until they exist or don't exist anymore. It's <laughs> it's a weird like metaphysical picture almost of a physical consequence that leads to you ceasing to have any impact whatsoever on the world as we see it. It's not just I don't provide for myself. It's that I am literally worth nothing. 
literally have nothing to bring to humanity's experience whatsoever. We already know that things aren't remembered, right? At least we can like add to the pile of crap that we're building. <laughs> um, he's worth nothing. It's a very, very vivid picture on that. However, on the other hand, um, there's no reason to go to the opposite extreme, right? It's a toiling and chasing after the wind. So verse 6 says, Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. We see this pendulum picture painted multiple times in Ecclesiastes. And, and while God is a God of extremes, like he doesn't do anything halfway, um, we as humans are supposed to find a, a balance, right? So on one hand, we have a fool does nothing. On the other hand, we have somebody who over works himself. He's full of toil and striving after the wind. Um, so for those of you who were giving us grief a couple weeks ago about toil and doing it to the ex- max, here's a picture, okay, of why it's not acceptable. Um, it's better to have a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. Two handfuls are not better than none if they are gained at the expense of tranquility or peace of mind. The lack of tranquility or contentment is always something that marks out the fool. So it's just as foolish to do nothing as it is to seek to have as much as you can hold. Right? This, one would think, is better than being a fool. But Scripture says it is not. This is just as bad as being over here with nothing. It's better to have one handful of quietness or tranquility or peace of mind. A single handful symbolizes the way ahead. The foregoing material has made it clear that the life of striving is fundamentally anti-neighbor. The point of life when viewed from this perspective is to get ahead of one's neighbors rather than to participate in community with them. Just as earlier in the book, it was to get ahead of creation as a whole rather than to live in harmony with it. To do nothing contributes nothing. To do too much contributes nothing and is fundamentally anti-neighbor, which is a big deal as we're getting ready to see. So here's the danger that we need to look for in the reality of oppression. You're going to be oppressed. It should not be a surprise to you. How do you handle it? How do you deal with it? Do you swing from one end to the other? Are you someone who climbs on somebody or are you one who does nothing? And a lot of you say, well, I am kind of doing a lot. I don't know that I have two handfuls, though. I feel like I'm doing all this busyness, all this work, and all this toil. And at the end of the day, I still don't even have two handfuls. So I'm, am I being foolish, or is that my one handful? Let me tell you today, and I don't mean to step on any nerves, that busyness is a sin. Okay? I don't care how busy you are. I don't. If you are too busy, you are sinning. Here's the danger, because you're getting ready to see another pendulum, okay? It doesn't mean don't do anything. For some of you who think you're busy and you're not, you need to have a heart-to-heart with God, okay? There's a happy medium that we need to strike for multiple reasons that we're going to see, okay? If you are way too busy for anything, you don't have time for neighbors. That's sin. If you're not doing anything, you're not contributing anything, and that is sin. So sort through what it looks like for you to have a not moderate schedule, but a hard schedule. You work hard, right? You contribute what you're supposed to. You have your one hand, but you have quietness. You have peace. You have tranquility. Now, those things come from God, okay? So you can strive all you want, and you'll miss out on that. These things come from God. This peace of mind, this tranquility comes from our Father. 
It comes from a balanced approach to life. It means we have to be disciplined. It means we have to plan. It means sometimes we're going to have to make up things where we weren't looking <laughs> ahead enough. It means we're going to have to work really hard sometimes and have other seasons where maybe we won't. But we need to have a balanced approach to this, making sure that we have peace of mind and we have another hand to be able to do stuff. So why is that important? Well, we see in verse 7 and in our second point, the redemption of community. The danger in trying to accumulate stuff is that it's fundamentally anti-neighbor, and from that point of life, it's to get ahead of one's neighbors rather than to participate in community with them. So we see the redemption that is found in community. So the redemption of community. Verse 7, again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So why, we, we understand the fool who eats himself. The, the guy who has two handfuls of stuff, why is that not to be desired? Because he needs a third hand. <laughs> he wants another handful of stuff. These two handfuls are not enough. And on top of that, we see this idea of loneliness. As you seek and strive to get ahead of other people and step on people, you find yourself alone. You find yourself without anyone next to you. So then these two handfuls, these three handfuls, these four handfuls that we're trying to hold, who are they for? Why are you doing that? What do we get from it? Verses 7 and 8 paint the picture of a person who's all alone, literally having no second person uh, without son or brother to inherit his wealth. So we're not simply talking about the companionship that's found in marriage um, because remember that you two are one, right? We're talking about someone who's literally all alone. This is a driven person toiling endlessly with his eyes fixed resolutely on some unspecified yet all-absorbing goal. His eyes were not content with his wealth. It is a futile and miserable way in which to live because toil and pursuit of more wealth prohibits the person from enjoyment of life. When do you have enough? You'll never have enough. So are we approaching our life on what we want or what we need? I know I'm going to catch some grief for this example, um, and I don't care. Um, it is the best way that I can paint this picture. Um, in World of Warcraft, <laughs> we have a valueless currency system, right? I can get no physical money from it. Um, it is called gold. Um, of course, what else would you call money? Gold. Who needs dollars? Um, I have a pile of gold, okay? Um, they m cap out the amount that you can have. I'm very good at making gold, right? AKA taking it from other people. Um, by selling them things that really have no value, but they still need, so I jack up the price on it, right? Uh, that's called oppression, okay? Um, <laughs> in that, I found myself with a problem over the summer, okay? I kept wanting to just, I had my little accountant tab telling me how much I made this week, over the past month, this day, this session, right? I kept wanting to see that keep going up and up and up and up and up and up. And I found myself with a pile of gold and nothing to do with it because I did not want to spend it. So what value is a valueless thing if you're not willing to spend it? You guys see the circular problem here? <laughs> um, you can keep making and making and making and making money, and the problem is, is it's never going to be enough. 
10,000, 20,000, 30,000, 40,000, 50,000, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100, 200, 300, 400, 500. How much do you need? How much do you want? What can you do with it? When are you going to spend it? How much are you going to put in savings? All these questions enter in that really don't matter, do they? At the end of the day, what do you need? It's not wrong to have things that you want, right? We see Kohelet saying that you should enjoy the fruits of your labors. You should enjoy the things that come about from your toil. You don't find your meaning in toil. I don't want to recap the entire book so far. You don't find your meaning in toil. You don't find any value whatsoever in those things apart from God. You simply know that it is good to enjoy what you have toiled for, right? We talked about that last week. And the problem here is is that we can do something that is worthwhile and valuable. Toil is is okay. We're commanded to do that, right? We're not going to find our value and meaning in it, but we're commanded to, to work. And we can enjoy what we find in that. But the problem is, is if we want and want and want and want more, we're never going to have enough. And it's not just that it's pointless. It's that it's miserable. Miserable. You say, I'm not going to, to purchase anything until I've got $15,000 in the bank. I'm not going to spend any of my money. I'm not going to take care of anybody. I'm not going to do anything for Christmas, not going to do anything whatsoever. I'm just going to accumulate my money and make sure that I'm good to go. And am I saying throw caution to the wind? No, okay, don't be ridiculous with me. Um, I'm simply saying that we hoard and it's never enough. And, and, and the danger here is, is as you do that, you forget what you're doing it for, why you're doing it, and who it's for. You have nobody and you find yourself alone. In verse 9, he goes on to say that two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. It makes sense if we took it in a very literal translation that two people working are probably going to produce more than one, right? I don't think that's what Koholite has in mind. The language of verse 8 is consciously picked up here in 9 in order to underline the difference between the two approaches to life and their consequences. The operation leads on to a rewarding life, both of the individual and for the neighbor. This is a non-monetary sense, okay? Uh, there is an emphasis on the futility of human activity when out of harmony with God's ways. So w- what, what does God have for us to do? Right? We, we talked about toil for a couple weeks now. What are we supposed to do? <laughs> I mean, when we come down to the end of the day, we've talked about what not to do, why it's bad, why it has no value, where it has value, what we're supposed to do with it. But what is it? What is toil? Toil is essentially the things under the sun that God has for us to do. Does that make sense? It's not that we do. It's not the things that we decide to do. It's not the things on our to-do list even. It's the things under the sun that God has for us to do. God ordained for us to do. If that's our working definition, then we are shown here that it's better to do it in harmony with God's ways. We forget a lot the, the, the importance of the Trinity in interpreting Scripture like this. So God is one, yet three, right? He's in perfect harmony with himself. When we see the operation with which the Godhead moves, we see the Father ordaining, the Son doing, and the Spirit powering, right? So when we approach our toil and we just do it by ourselves because we can get ahead, We're not in harmony with God's ways. Not only are we not accomplishing anything, we're not accomplishing anything quickly. (laughs) 
So what does it look like then to be in harmony with God and his ways? And kind of flip the, the switch on this idea of a good reward for their toil. And we see a, a good parallel here in 10, 11, and 12. So follow along in the scripture as we read this. Verse 10, it says, For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So there may be pitfalls that confront the two of them as they journey. If you take a, the, a look at this as the analogy that he's trying to draw of a, of a journey. Of one man going on a journey alone and two people going on a journey alone. So there may be pitfalls that confront them, but at least the troubles will be faced together and help will be available. There will be cold and dark nights as the travels progress, but at least there will be the warmth that another person's presence brings. There may be enemies lying in wait on the path, but at least the battles will be fought alongside another and not alone. See, what we have to do in, in reading this is not take this as a, as a proverb, okay? Because as you read through this wisdom literature, it's easy to associate it with Proverbs. Um, as you read through each verse by verse, try it at home, read a verse and pause, read a verse and pause, read a verse and pause. It sounds like a short, pithy saying, right? It has some sort of wisdom attached to it. They're not always true, but definitely helpful. This is, there's a danger in here that we don't take this for what he's trying to paint. Okay, This is a very wise person trying to draw a picture for us. I respond well to pictures. I'm a visual person. This is the story that he draws. We see a solitary traveler trying to go faster. Uh, and indeed, he may gain riches along the way as he we- leaves the weak and the slow behind him. It is not required to share what he finds. However, he will also know pits out of which he must dig himself unrelentingly cold nights and lonely battles. He will in the end see no profit from it all. For the gain we make from our toil is found in the toil itself, completed in the context of our whole lives, lived out before God and in the company of others to whom we are intrinsically and healthily connected as creatures of God. In community, our lives are strong and enduring like the rope of three strands. The fool's individualistic life is, by contrast, weak and destined to be broken. I hope I don't have to draw the major picture that this is a community here, right? So 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. It's a really thick rope. <laughs> okay. And we live out together in harmony rather than just simply trying to get ahead of each other. We'll be successful. And it's more than, his, than the success. Okay. The joy is found in the journey. When you go on a trip, you don't just talk about, oh, it's so great to be home. Home. <laughs> Our destination was to get back, right? I mean, whew, round trip ticket worked. We're back home. You talk about the journey. The fact that your plane was two hours late, stewardess spilled something on you while you were flying, uh, that you went and had sushi three times, that you went in the ocean, that you walked up and almost stepped on a jellyfish. It's all in the journey, right? Not only do you get to do it together and successfully, you get to share those experiences. This community is where we find our redemption. If you want to find the answer to the fundamental problem of oppression, of misery, of evil and toil, of us being selfish and trying to step on top of each other, 
The answer is in the redemption that we find in community. Right? That is what redeems this whole idea, is that we do it together. There's no competition. There's no frat race. The last thing, and this one is uh, relatively quick. Uh, it's the restoration of leadership. Um, again, my titles here are what I want you to take away from this, okay? Uh, not necessarily just what the text is talking about. So the restoration of leadership, because we're, what we're getting ready to see is very poor leadership <laughs> um, and, and a very sad picture of it. But we find restoration of leadership in a life lived with God. So verse 13, um, before I read this, I want to have a confession. I have no clue how many people are in this story. Um, <laughs> as you read it, you're going to see a lot of pronouns, okay? Uh, there are no names whatsoever, just a lot of pronouns. And because of this, we don't know if there's two people in this story or five. Um, it could be either. <laughs> so with that, um, there are a few principles that are very easily pulled from this, and that's what we need to rest on, not necessarily how many people are in the picture here. Um, so let's go ahead and read this together, uh, 13 through 16. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who came or come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. So, uh, first to confuse you, uh, we have a poor and wise youth and an old and foolish king. Now you can read this and just take it as those two characters. Um, however, it would also be appropriate then to go into verse 14. For he went from prison to the throne. That could be another youth. Though in his own kingdom he had been poor. That could be another king. I saw all the living who move under the sun. Along with that youth, that could be a separate youth. So now we have three youths and two kings, right? Uh, who will stand in the king's place. That could either refer to either of the two kings or be in another one. So now we have six. Um, don't know. Not clear. Sorry. I don't know Hebrew. But the people who know Hebrew don't know. Um, so I'm sorry. So from there, what can we take away from this, given that this story doesn't entirely make sense because we don't know who's leapfrogging who? Well, the principle is the same no matter how many characters you have, whether it's two or whether it's six. It doesn't matter. Uh, what we find here in verse 13 is a very simple one. It's better uh, to be a poor and wise youth than to be an old um, and foolish king. <coughs> I want to be careful um, here that these translations are tough. Um, do not find old synonymous with foolish, okay? Uh, this can say, this can look as if it's synonymous. Because he was old, he was foolish. That's, that's not what he's saying, okay? If we're talking about contrast here, it's better to be young and wise than to be old where you should be wise, yet forget how to take advice. Okay, so it's not the old that makes him foolish, it's the no longer know how to take advice that makes him foolish. Does that make sense? So it's better to be poor and, and, and young, so no resources and no experience, yet be wise. And to be old and have everything, a king who resources high, right? To be old where you should be wise with experiences and then to have resources, yet not know how to take advice. So the king, as we have seen in um, chapter 112 uh, through 226, is the person who above all might be expected to gain from toil in Israel and who might equally be expected to be a major source of oppression. 
So this is somebody who has everything that he needs slash wants, yet is probably also high on the side of oppression. Uh, you can find another example of this in 1 Samuel 8, 10 through 18. He represents the pinnacle of human success and the lifestyle to which many aspire. It is not surprising that in the course of reflections on the solitary yet unhappy and futile life, we should return to consider once again the figure of the king. And so in 14, it says, For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. So this, they try to draw some examples, and at the same time they try to draw the examples, they say that you can't really do this. So keep that in mind. But I mean, this is kind of like the idea of Joseph. So Joseph was in prison and then became second only to the king, right? Um, someone who comes from a lowly place to take a high position of authority, if not just the king himself. Um, so we have that kind of picture happening. Um, so as someone who you would think would remember his roots, right? And then totally forgets them. Verse 15, I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. So this could be the person who came from prison and is now king and has another person getting ready to take over for him. Or it could be that person who came through prison getting ready to be king. Um, I know, I'm sorry. So the principle then here that we find is first, remember to take advice <laughs> when you get older, okay? Always have wise counselors around you. When it comes to our president, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for because I don't particularly care who the man himself is no, for all intents and purposes. But I want him to be a man of character. I want him to show wisdom because there's a thing called a cabinet, all right? They are supposed to bring around people who know more about them in those things. So if our president doesn't have every answer on foreign policy, I'm okay with that because he's got somebody who's doing only foreign policy. And if they're a person of character, they're going to pick someone who does that well. That's important to me. I don't care if they don't have every answer for the economy because they're going to bring people in on their cabinet who are good with economics. I want a man of character. I want a man who can take advice, who seeks wisdom from other people, not who thinks they have all the answers. And that's the danger that we see first here in verse 14 and 13. The second thing that we see is that advancement all too often brings with it the loss of the self. As people lose touch with where they've come from, verse 13 and 14, it brings with it even greater toil than before, but no greater things, verse 15 and 16. So for those who aspire to leadership, for those who aspire to be managers, whatever it may be in your realm, whether it be pastor, whether it be manager, whether it be uh, congressman, whether it be president, whether it be king, um, whatever you aspire to, understand that leadership stinks, okay? Um, it's dangerous. You, for, you can forget from where you came and the lessons that came with that. You can lose yourself. And ultimately, we find out that if <laughs> there's no end to toil, verse 16, there was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Your phone will be ringing off the hook. People will be showing up at your door. You will have lots of people to talk to, and there will be no end to it. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. There is no thanks for that job. Does this mean it's not worth doing? but it's a danger. Because the danger is, is that you can lose. You can place all of your value in accomplishing that job. You can place all of your value in meeting the needs of all those people. You can place your value and meaning in all the thanks that you occasionally get for that job. 
But we find that it is restored when we do it with what? The power of Christ. Just like everything else in Ecclesiastes. <laughs> everything else in Ecclesiastes is restored because of the work of Christ, because of the work of what we do in the power of God, for God, that he has ordained for us. So where do you find your value? What do you put your toil on? Who are you stepping on to get there? And so as we close, I want to take you to Luke chapter 12. I'm going to have the rest of the band come up at this time. Go to Luke chapter 12, verse 15. It says, And he said to them, Take care, and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? This breaks my heart. Verse 18. He said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. There's enormous danger in seeking the things of this world versus seeking the things of God. And this is why we, we, we harped on this in this series. You can't just do things for God. It is not that simple. We are capable of nothing good apart from God. We are totally and completely evil. And if left to ourselves, we will trample everyone and leave them in misery. If you don't believe me, watch the news. There are men who do this every single day to their families. There are people that do this in their businesses. There's people that do this everywhere. We are evil people. And apart from a holy God, we're capable of nothing good. So enjoy God. Not the things of God, but God. Love Him deeply, and that's where we will find our meaning. That's where we will find our contentment, our joy, our value. Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, we thank you so much for what you've done. Father, while we were still sinners, you sent your son to die for us. Father, that we didn't need we didn't need to ask for forgiveness beforehand. Father, that we didn't have to do everything that we could to be redeemed apart from you. But Father, that you provided a way even when we were still spitting in your face. And Father, as we look at this danger that we can have of being oppressive towards others whether not taking care of each other by leading in such a way that it, it's, it crushes other people but as we then look at, at leadership uh, that, that is tough that is full of toil that has no end and no meaning in and of itself Father, that those that you put in leadership in the church and business, Father, and the leaders at home and their families God, that we do that not for the thanks, not for the, the position, not for the title, but, Father, because you have ordained it for us and you have provided a way for us to be effective 
leaders for your kingdom. And Father, as we look at the idea of, of this community, Father, that we feel blessed and privileged to be a part of people that care about us. But people that come here to hear your word be proclaimed, to sing praises to your name. Father, people that exalt you and what they do. And in that, we're able to turn to each other and care for one another. But I thank you for what you've done, for what you've ordained, for how you've designed this so perfectly for us to be able to submit ourselves to you in a way that is fulfilling, brings meaning, and brings direction. Father, that we're able to partner with you and what you're doing here. And that you include us in your mighty work. We love you and we thank you. Jesus, I pray. Amen.